Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 85 The Tear, the Kick, and Labrie, Malta, where Marsh grew up. There's a place in the English countryside called Labrie, where people from all over the world come to rest and study and be part of a community and find answers to questions they have about God that they may not have found time for back home. It's an old manor house with fireplaces, sheep grazing on the neighbor's farm, a pub down the road, and most importantly, a library. Labrie means shelter in French. I couldn't wait to see who we would meet and what brought them and record how Labrie was right then in the process of changing them. But I could never have dreamed up Marsh and the stories he told me, sitting by a wood fire in his book-lined office one November day. Still fresh from Ireland, I had a blessing on my mind. Here's Scott Akela Nadini. Under the shelter of others, people survive. And around our, our meal tables, you get you get a lot of a lot of time for personal reflection. And I've reflected on the experience a lot because a lot of the students who come here. Um, are going through things I've been through, so that that does give you time to to really wonder, you know, what was it? Why is it about the human mm-hmm. condition that makes us that makes us travel and wander? You know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I do think about it a lot, and uh, and because because it happened so early in my life. I was seven when I first went away. Mm. Um, uh, in fact, I was talking to someone yesterday about it who came in with a question about belonging. Mm. And we went, I, when I was seven, I went to Malta and didn't want to go. It was like a tearing from my home uh, place. And I, I said to her, when I was 24, I went back. I was happened to be driving by um, it's, it's east east of London, the place where I was on, uh, and I was coming up from from Europe, going up to see my parents, and I happened to be driving by, and I had the whole day, so I thought I'll just go back and see if I can find that house where I grew up the first seven years of my life. So I drove off the, the motorway, went up, came to the town, found the house in the street in the after all that time um, and as I pulled up I had this overwhelming sense of coming home oh, 24 this is what 14 you know 50 16 years later just this of I, and I was I was physically and what is this this is absolutely amazing and um, and I went 
across the street. I parked outside the house I was because I was actually physically born in the house. It was I wasn't born in a hospital. Um, and I went across the street to an old neighbour who I I I I'd known the name. <laughs> so I I said, you know, are you Mrs. So and so? And she says, yes. And I said, well, my name's Marsh Moyles. What? She said. <laughs> and uh, and talk I, about belonging. Yeah, it was such a strong experience. And and I went over and found the school that I went to, and I you know just walked down. Uh, I re I went to a shop that was on the way to the school and remembered my mother's. Um, it was a co-op shop, and you had a number, membership number. I her number came back to my my mind, you know. And it was the weirdest, most very, very powerful visceral experience yeah. of coming home. And of course, then you know, I got home and I saw my parents, told them about it, and then left a couple of days later to go back to Vienna, where I was living. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you had. I used to come back to Britain when I came. If someone picked me up at the station or the or the airport. Um, and took me home, I'd be fine. But if I got on a train, I had to make my own way and listen to people, and so I'd be completely a gibbering idiot by the time I got home, <laughs> sort of fragmented and all over the place. It took a long time to to get over that. There was a there was a time when I didn't feel that I actually arrived back in England until I'd seen Nelson's column. Mm, yeah, which yeah. I, you know, you, there's this little icon of, because yeah. I grew up in Malta, and Malta was, um, and, and we were there because of Empire. It was when the, um, the, the dying days of the British Empire and the sun was finally setting, and and um, so we were there for ten years and seven to seventeen, and and the. Um, very strong military and empire England, Brit Britain. And of course Britain had completely left all that behind. So mm. we were still in one kind of old Britain and they were in New Britain. So when I came back, completely didn't fit into, I couldn't stand it. it. Lasted about two and a half years and then took off to Austria. Um, very, very unsettled. I had reverse culture shock, although you wouldn't have known, nobody knew what that was then, we'd have names and language for it then, but but, um, but I've read plenty on it since then, so. Before we go too much further, yeah. I want to ask the usual first question, which is, can you describe what you look like for anyone listening? All <laughs> 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 <Old>, too heavy, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, dress in black. <laughs> um, is there a reason for that? Um, old habits, you know, yeah. Eastern Europe. That was that was very much. Oh yeah. Um, I've heard about that. And and I just simplicity. I just yeah. don't need any anything to complicate my life. <laughs> so it's blue and black of kind of more or less what I wear. Um, hearing aids, sixty something, early sixties. Um, glasses, fading eyesight. Limited amount of hair. <laughs> Any other okay. details? That's a vivid picture. <laughs> okay, so the the second typical question is: Can you describe where we are 
We no. are in Gretham in Hampshire in my study at Labrie. Um, uh, there's a fire in the, uh, um, it's still cold, we're still warming up. Um, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful sunny cold day in the end of November. And um, we've lived here for nine years. Mm. Um, yeah, anything else you want to know about that? What made you come to Labrie? Well, we were living in Slovakia and um, we've been living in Central Europe for 35 years. Um, 15 of those have been under communism. We've been living in Vienna and traveling in and out of Eastern Europe, or what was then called Eastern Europe, Central Europe. And then when the, the war came down, we moved into Slovakia. It was, it could have been any of the countries. It just happened to be the one that we thought was the most convenient for the work we were doing at the time, which was setting up publishing houses. Um, and we moved there because we were trying to, um, needed to be located in one of the countries where the change was happening in order to understand it. Mm -hmm. And we lived there for 16 years. And after those, that whole period of time, my wife and I were, were looking to change. We were tired. Mm -hmm. um, and we were looking to um, say, well, where should we spend the next sort of more final stage of our life, if you like. <laughs> um, and, and one of the, the members of Labrie was a trustee of our work and so he said why don't you come here and base yourself from here and travel out from here and that seemed like a good idea it's a good combination of the things I wanted to do which was sort of mentoring writing getting the ideas clearer and um, and teaching mm. um, uh, so that's what I do here and I do from here to other places this is a big question, but can you give the listeners a sense of <laughs> what happens at this place? What the spirit Labrie, of this place it's, is? It's actually quite easy. People come here to um, with a, either a specific set of questions or issues that they want to work through, or they come here with a sense that they need to get somewhere else in their life and they don't know what that might be and they need our help to help them work on it. So we have a wide range of people coming from all sorts of educational age ranges, Christians, non-Christians. Um, they know it's a Christian place, we, we're going to give a Christian perspective on reality but we're going to take them seriously as human beings. Um, we aim to listen to people and to allow them to articulate who they are and we we present them with a Christian framework which they can either take or not but um, and, and, then, and I would say three different types of people come people who are convinced Christians um, but aren't necessarily sure how big the message is that so they've been they've, they've come to a place where they're, they're um, 
the message they have isn't big enough for the reality they're living in and mm -hmm. so they need to be able to expand it and that sometimes feels like they're breaching a loyalty mm. so they need to have a space where they can do that there are the people who are, have given up on Christianity because of the community the culture the um, and and they want to give Christ one last shot to see if there's some sort of because they're attracted to Christ and and the, but they're not attracted necessarily to the sort of middle-class evangelical culture that has arisen around this mixture of consumerism and Christianity that has emerged as the church in some parts of the world um, and we have the same problem with it so we understand that um, and there are people who come because they're burned out they're tired they need to think why they keep burning out or um, or they've got a specific question or a specific ache in their soul that they want to address and don't know where to begin with it. So people come for all those sorts of reasons and they've heard from other people um, that there's a community where they, they don't have to go through a fixed s curriculum. Mm. Yeah. They come, they work half a day, they study half a day, but the study is made up of what they want, what they need. It's very much, they work with a tutor to read the books, listen to the lectures, think through, do exercises, whatever's necessary. I mean, some people come, they're tired. We say, okay, we'll spend two weeks reading a novel. Um, you know, so, um, and others, others come and they, they're so much into fantasy, so we just stop doing that. Start, start getting into some reality. Can you offer one example of a novel that you prescribed? <laughs> oh yeah, I I I I'm, I'm a Chaim Potok is a very wonderful writer, and he's got two books called My Name Is Ashalev and The Gift of Ashalev. So we get a lot of people who have an artistic gift mm. in a community that um, doesn't understand art. The evangelical community, by and large, struggles with art and the imagination um, its concept of the word mm. is is probably not r ripe enough to be able to contain visual images and so artists come very frustrated that they're misunderstood and it's a helpful book because it's from a Jewish perspective and it's not so it's not Christian mm but it's exactly the same issues that are being raised and so it just gives a person a different perspective. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, there'd be, there'd be many others too. Yeah. That's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious about the people who come here like you to participate in the project of Libri. Do you find a similar experience that the students find, that the seekers that come here find, I wonder. You know, you're coming to offer that hospitality. You know, do you, how does it work for you? It must affect you also. It does. I mean, I don't live right on site. I live around the corner, so I have a slight bit of distance. Mm. And I'm often away doing a week of teaching here, there, everywhere. So I'm not in the absolute... Um, immediacy of the whole thing mm. um, 
but um, it's a tremendous learning experience. It's a tremendous. It's st it's stimulating, in the sense that you we do a lunch discussion which lasts for an hour and a half, and you start off by saying what would you like to talk about, and you don't know what's coming, and in the course of a year, you might get a hundred different topics. Mm. Uh, and so that's always starting with your grounded study in the word and in reality and, and you go from there into their specific question. You've got to listen to it, you've got to get it articulated because often the question is rambling and, and that's okay because that's part of the space is to help the people articulate and and air the whole range of the question so it may be something very narrow for them but they haven't actually seen how big and how all-embracing it is um, and so it's fascinating um, there are questions that you know, when I hear them I think oh no I don't want to talk about that <laughs> so, you know some sort of abstract bit of theology can, can you give one example of, of, of both uh, that, that stuck in your mind? Well, we've been talking this week about disappointment. Mm. And um, it just came up. I've done three lunch discussions and it came up in each one of them. And um, it started off with someone saying something along the lines of, um, I want to trust God for my future. And I've, you know, it sounds very good, it sounds very pious, but I'm listening to it and I've often heard that uh, with a, raises a question mark for me. What, I want to say, what about you? What do you want? Mm. And do you have the courage to articulate what you want mm. in the face of God? It's easy, it's easy to hide behind God with your lack of courage. And say, well, I'll take whatever you give me rather than say, no, I want to do this. Mm. And do you think God's will is like a, a map, a road you have to go on, or, or even worse, a razor blade you've got to balance on so you don't, or do you see it as a field that he says, go and play in the field and you can do whatever you like? Um, very, very different concepts, but some churches have a very narrow concept that if you get out of the will of God, you really, but God's will is moral, first of all. Um, it's about... Um, uh, God doesn't make the world in order to set you on a series of razor blades. He says you're in a free place and now you have to grow into maturity. Maturity is God's goal. Um, godliness is God's goal. And occasionally there's a specific calling and it, you need to be obedient to it. Um, uh, but then you also have to take on co-regency. You have to be a responsible person part of that is articulating desire and so that was the discussion over two or three days has gone on about that which is very um, very fruitful and that because all sorts of things get in the way of our desires and cowardice is one of them mm -hmm. you know um, uh, and the fear of disappointment again is another and where does the fear come from where does the disappointment come from so that was a, that was a very fruitful and wonderful discussion this week Occasionally you have things like, um, um, the one, one of the ones that makes my heart sink is the one about hell. <laughs> um, and another one um, is, um, you know, if God is all sovereign and all good and, and blah, blah. And, you know, the, the sort of, 
deeply, deeply important questions, no doubt, but covering so much um, ground and so many assumptions. So you've got 15 people, 10 people around a table, and you've got 10 sets of assumptions which need to be brought out because uh, unarticulated assumptions are at the heart of our thought mistakes. So mm. um, you can be dealing with one, but not not the you know, person on the other side of the table might be completely in a different space. And if you've got Christians, non-Christians, and so on, you can't just assume everybody is um, in the same place. In fact, you have to assume they're not. Yeah. And so it becomes very dynamically very challenging to to lead a discussion like that. Yeah. Um, and occasionally, when you get tired, it's just easier to speak and preach rather than teach, <laughs> rather than actually say, and draw, using questions to draw people out. And, 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 uh, and uh, so when you get tired, it can be long-winded. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, I think, I think there are, um, and the, the really um, questions that we don't tolerate are, mm dishonest questions mm, mm. where we someone's trying to be clever or someone's trying to hide behind something mm. we we have a very strong commitment to reality yeah say so maturity is always taking steps towards reality so so um, uh, when you're trying to hide um, we, we we tend to be yeah, somewhat aggressive about <laughs> just uh, um, uh, gently aggressive about um, unmasking that mm. that kind of um, delicate uh, skill is something that's learned I know mm -hmm. so that that makes me just wonder similarly to what I've asked already but uh, how has this changed you coming here and, and soon we'll get to your your travels, mm -hmm. which that's the heart of what I want to talk about. But before we get there, now we're here, and I'm curious if coming from moving so much to here, interacting in this way, if you've noticed changes in you. Well, we were doing very similar things there, yeah. and our association with with Labrie goes back a long way before we came here so in terms of um, meetings and conferences and things we had lots of we were running a similar sort of place in Slovakia mm. with lots of people from here going there so it was a uh, using the same dynamic and the same I hope the same respect for people yeah so the idea of naming people and um acknowledging their existence and listening um, taking them seriously as a starting place mm -hmm. not trying to push people through a sort of sausage grinder of theological correctness yeah. um, working through um, transformations that they uh, needed and sense that they needed to go through um, so, in one sense, not much. In the other sense, it's it's a, what is wonderful about being here is the reminder continually um, that you are co-working with God. Therefore, there is a we talk about the moment by moment reality of God's presence, and that you 
it's, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to become a functional deist, or even worse, a functional atheist, even mm -hmm. though you're Christian. Mm. Uh, but to, to be reminded day by day, um, because you need to be, that, that God is present and God is active, mm -hmm. and that you are in the servant role, not the, you know, you're not the saviour, he's mm -hmm. the saviour. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's, I think, is a, it's a healthy thing to be here. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I appreciate that. Um, and my own role here is, is, in that sense, pleasant, because I'm not in any directing or leadership role, mm -hmm. actively organising anything. Um, I have the time and the luxury, really, to, to to step back and to um, um, do the kind of study I do and the work I do, um, uh, which is what I was looking for for this period of my life, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then let's go all the way back to the tear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the tear to Malta and your decision to go to Austria after that. It sounded like you were suggesting there there might be a connection there, or your your reverse culture shock in England. Yeah, I mean the missionary call is interesting because um, you know now now looking back, I've I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people with missionary calls, and I you know, in quotes. Um, I got a letter from George Verwer, who was the head of Operation Mobilization, the founder of Operation Mobilization, who my family had met somewhere or other. And he said to me, you don't need a call, you need a kick. Which <laughs> <laughs> is a wonderful, a wonderful way of, you know, you know he's just very, very real yeah. and um, very honest and uh, a very fine man for that. <laughs> And um, and he said, it started off, greetings in the life-changing name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, you know, you don't need a call, you need a kick. And <laughs> it's funny that after 40, 50 years, I can remember how he opened the letter. Mm. Because it, it was a... I, you know, my Christianity was very intellectual. It was very... It was deeply my quest... And I was I was reading the French existentialists. I was reading the Bible. The existentialists were describing how I was feeling. The Bible was describing my longings. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around at society and thinking, what do I want to do? And and I thought, well, there's there's nothing I want to do. This is so mundane. There's no meaning. There's no there's no grand event um, and um, I wasn't completely oh, well I, I was relatively sure about Christ and the Bible I was completely sure the church as I was experiencing it was was meaningless mm. um, it was during a time in Britain in the early 70s when the charismatic movement was just sort of get, getting going 
and there were the most furious rows from both sides about what was right and wrong. Regardless of what you believe, the ugliness of the discussion just 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 drove me away. Yeah, as a, a fairly sensitive person who who was interested in truth, I thought I'm, I'm just not. I don't want to play in that sandpit, and I. So I. I was wrestling because my parents were, were had been converted and they in Malta and they were very active in the church and, but I was utterly uninterested in the culture. Mm. Um, so I was, I said to myself, I, I will look for some kind of place where they take the Christianity very seriously, and I'll go there for a while and see if it works. And if it does, I'll pursue it. And if it doesn't, I'll chuck the whole thing overboard. And um, I'd spent a year wandering around England, traveling. Wow. What does that mean? Like, I, working uh, seasonally or walking? or. Um, it meant going with a friend to from Leicestershire, where I was living at the time, up to Liverpool, spending weeks there going across to where did I go to Hull working in the Salvation Army alcoholic centre literally I walked in and said have you got a job and he said what are you interested in I said I'm interested in God I don't know if he, he, and, and I just joined there six weeks or so and then I went down to, a, to Bristol and worked um in a mental institute, same thing. I w went in looking for work, and um, somebody came up and said, "Are you the person that's come to interview for the nursing assistant's job?" So I just said, "Yes." <laughs> I didn't know. So it took me, and I got the job. <laughs> and I worked there for six or eight weeks before wow. I got thrown out of the place I was living in, and then I spent. Uh, um, several weeks just wandering around um, in the south coast. Uh, came very close to here. If I'd have known this place existed, I would have definitely come yeah. back then because I was definitely a very much a... I was reading the Bible everywhere, struggling with this question of existential life and reading the, the existentialists and trying to bring the two worlds together. and. Um, Eventually, I ended up in London with a series of jobs, and, and my sister was living there then, so I, I stayed with them. And that's when I started to think, I've got to decide whether I really am committed to this Christianity or not. But where can I figure that out? And this, this group, Operation Mobilization, which was a, then a very radical organization, um, I thought I'd met some of them, and. I thought I'd go there and see. So I'm really going with a deep sense of I hope Christianity is true and I think it's true, but I can't figure this church thing out. And I'd been to many churches during this this year of wandering, and no one had ever spoken to me. Mm. You know, all the time I was traveling, you know, visiting, desperate loneliness. Um, and um, and trying to find because I I'd been away from England. Coming like, what is England and what is this place? Um, and yet being very 
far too young to have a, any thought structure to work out the answers. Um, and so I went, I applied and for the, and, and got into go for a summer for three months to mm. France. And on the way there, literally on the way to there, I went to a Scientology place and had myself did <laughs> 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 there. So I was quite curious <laughs> um, and bumped into some children of God who were doing some various things and spending a day there, that sort of thing. So, um, and and so went 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 to their their conference, went through their their first week, which was in a an old abandoned monastery or, or disused monastery where we were all sleeping on the floor and it was all very radical and very up early for exercises and all kinds of stuff and um, and I discovered quite a few people like me there mm -hmm. so that was in a sense helpful um, and I went to France and it was a disaster mm. you just Simply because because everything was far too cliched Christianity and and I didn't uh, the language I was speaking and the books I was reading and so on just didn't fit in with what was going on. And so at the end of that first month, I went up back up to the place where they had a the, the sort of three weeks of work and then a week of conference training and so on. And whilst I was there, I got. Um, my the small groups that we had, uh, the leader of that was um, uh, a man who I still know, um, and he's just asked me, "How are you getting on?" I said, "I hate it." He said, <laughs> "He said, would you be interested in going to Turkey?" Said, oh, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> and so we'll go to this room for an interview, um, and it was all sort of not secret but very private, and um, and they. They had this interview, a very serious group of people, and um, they said, "We'll come back in a couple of days, and well, if your name's on the door, you you know you can go." And during that day, that those few days, I was praying, and I, I prayed a lot. I believed in 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 God. There was just so many open ends, though, in terms of the structure of the whole thing. And I was praying and I was reading the Bible. I mean, I, I, this is, this is the Bible. Is, um, that I was reading. Wow. You know, wow. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a pretty worn old battered book. It's been taped and <laughs> there's no cover for the binding and yeah, paper yeah. sticking out. It's dog-eared. Um, it yeah, and I it, it was pretty much like that when I was because I was reading it, I, you know, daily. Yeah, um, and it was speaking to me, but I was reading a high, in a highly subjective way, mm. and so I'd come to this bit. I'm reading about um, Acts, and it says, "Come over to Macedonia." Mm. Oh, I thought Macedonia—that's near Turkey. <laughs> that's, that's the level of my exegetical sort of skills but the words literally jumped off the page and sort of locked themselves into my brain wow. and I couldn't get them out of my head Macedonia and I think well, Macedonia, Turkey it's all the same sort of thing really 
uh, and then and then I go back to this place and see my name's on the door and the guy comes out and says oh yeah he says by the way we, what you really want you to do is to go to Macedonia mm. and just <laughs> my whole world sort of wow you know that's amazing um, and and that kind of magical thinking which was quite common in my own sort of mind back then I think God used it you know he's great he can use Balaam's ass so he can use my magical thinking so so I went and spent the rest of the summer there and during the summer um, we, we were going into what is the former Yugoslavia and we were distributing gospels basically in, in the middle of the night late and getting chased and various of my friends were getting arrested and I spent a month in prison that sort of thing which for a 19 year old was quite exciting mm -hmm. it was it was a bit it was um, it met that need for significance <laughs> that that I particularly was and, and meaning that I was um, and so I spent the summer there and I just fell in love with the area to mm. be honest I mean it, they say the Balkans you either love it or you you hate it um, a bit like Marmite really <laughs> and, and I just fell in love with him and um, and then realised during the year my own immaturity my own need for stability and for more exercise and they had this ship which was um, uh, it's still still functioning uh, used to go around from port to port selling books, Christian books, but also all sorts of other books that people might find useful for building up a uh, culture and so on, engineering, medicine, that sort of stuff. And um, so I, 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 I went on that for a year and found some very significant help, mostly in the form of a, a mentor who, who I met there. Um, and he gave me a huge amount of time and listened and helped me sort of understand what was going on. And at the same time, I'm, I, I found Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There, mm. in the library. Very, very worn copy of it. And I, I was the night watchman on the ship. So I spent one night in Sevilla in Spain reading the book, walking alongside the ship up and down taking a few pages, bring them back, because it was really a worn out <laughs> book, you know, the binding had gone and I could take three or four pages and read them. And, and, that, and the, so the, on the one side you had the existentialist, on the other side you had the Bible, and his Schaefer says, this is how you can think about the two things together. And that was a huge moment for me. So I could suddenly see that all of life was one. There wasn't this religious side and then this, this other side and this integration. And... Um, and that, plus the help, the psychological help that I was getting, just just helped me realise that um, I could think properly about Christianity in daily life, mm. and and that integration um, uh, that is so much part of the damage of our Western society that split. Um, was actually a false way of looking at reality and in many ways the church was wrong bits mm. of the church that I'd been involved in 
in separating the two. So that 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 got me into Christianity fully. Mm. Um, um, I could commit to it. My relationship with the church was such that I because I was being active in. Um, so I went from there to back to Eastern Europe at the end of that year, and uh, we were sm doing Bible smuggling and all sorts of things like that. I was also going door to door in the universities in Brno and Bratislava and places like that, asking people if they wanted to speak English. Um, and I met lots of the intellectuals from the 1968 up, sort of uprising in in the Czechoslovakia who who took life seriously and so I was very engaged with that and, and that made sense to me and um, I could ignore the church question because I was so involved in that and in reading about Christianity and what, what it was and I did a lot of apologetics reading at that stage in my life um, and um, and even on the on the ship, I would go to Russian ships and talk to Russian sailors and so on. So I had that strong leaning towards the Slavic world, which I found fascinating. I was reading lots of Russian history and um, all the all the great Russian authors, you know. Um, and so it was a very natural play. I met lots of Russians. I, I can remember beating um Ukrainians actually on a on a on a large uh, ship. They used to have these um, liners that they would get Western passengers, and they'd have Russian crews or Soviet crews anyway. Um, and it would be a way of getting Western currency. Um, uh, so these these were two very intelligent young Ukrainians I met, and I invited them to my ship. So they came over and I went to make some tea and I'd left a copy of a book called by F.F. F. Bruce um, I think it was called Origins or Sources of Christianity Outside or Jesus Outside of the Bible. I left it on the day, very dry <laughs> academic sort of text and when I came back in they were crying, both of them were crying what, what's going on? And they had picked up this book that I'd been reading and it opened to a chart which gave a list of all the places where Jesus is mentioned as a historical figure outside of the New Testament and they said we've been lied to we've been taught that Jesus never existed as a historical figure we've been lied to and their entire worldview had collapsed whilst I was in the getting the tea it's <laughs> amazing and I, I thought oh, this, is, this is staggering this is so, so easy, you know. <laughs> and and uh, and we had a long conversation. And the tragedy at the end of it, they said it's just best not to think. And that during the conversation, they told me if we believe this, this is what will happen to us when we go back to the Soviet Union. You will be put in prison, or we'll be, won't we have to leave again? We'll have to give up these jobs. We can't. We just can't afford to believe it. And that made me angry. That freedom of thought. Um, is such a, such a fundamental it was so fundamental to my existence I don't know where I picked it up which incidentally I find myself now in my early 60s having come back and 
and listening to what's going on in our universities. Mm. This morning I read about a university in Canada where someone was brought before a kangaroo court because she played some piece of politically unacceptable, and I'm outraged. You know, I didn't, I spent all that time in Eastern Europe helping people to come back to discover in the US and Canada and Britain, people are back to the same Marxist nonsense. You know, it just, just, uh, it's staggering our stupidity. Anyway, that's my little rant. But, but, um, so I met these two people and it deeply moved me that they, they couldn't pursue their thoughts without, without political consequences. And, and then I met a, a guy called Brother Andrew, who's a, one of the first Bible smugglers. And I said to him, how do you do? And he looked at me and he said, are you willing to give the rest of your life to my answer? <laughs> That's a pretty existential moment, <laughs> you know. Wow, you know, it's ripped rip, uh, the, 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 the mask off your face. Don't be, don't be, you know, just, uh, are you committed to your word? So those two things were powerful moments. And I, at the end of this year on the ship, I went back to, to Eastern Europe and was doing all of this and, and just got more and more and more involved in it and spent eight years doing research in Eastern Europe on everything we needed to know, setting up networks of people who would help with the books, but also learning what the church was like, why the people believed, how they believed, um, what their particular theological, how, how the how the communist experience had shaped their belief. Um, and um, yeah, I wrote about that quite extensively. Um, so it was more being pulled in and, and God meeting me in on the journey. Um, and, and, you know, was it a call? Was it a kick? Was it an accident? <laughs> was I running away from England? Um, you know, from family issues that weren't terribly healthy either. It's probably all of those. <laughs> you know, I don't think we are. I don't think there are tidy mm. steps. Um, and um, yeah, then I met I met my wife um, in Vienna, um, and um, got into. You know, she's from Finland, so we. Um, but she'd already been traveling. She'd been to India and spent two years there. And um, she'd come to faith in Helsinki. But the thing that kept her from faith was the fear of having to leave home. Mm. And she spent all her life away from home. So, <laughs> so she, you know, um, and yeah, so we met in Vienna and uh, uh, did that work for together for 35 years um, yeah where to go from there yeah um, well what I'll do is I'll ask the last question and then we can officially stop but see whatever else okay. comes up however much time you have but um, you've told <laughs> very um finely wrought stories already that are full of rich detail 
Um, but I always like to end with, with a good story. So can you think of any great travel story you can share? You know, when you've been traveling for 35 years and you, tra I mean, literally until this last year, where I've year and a half and I've been writing a lot. Uh, so I, st I deliberately try to stay here and I've only been um, on five trips this year. Mm. Um, only. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> maybe it would be every month, every month for 35 years, maybe uh, some parts of that be 50% of the time traveling on the road. Um, which it's not so uncommon if you're traveling salesman, you do that in the States all the time, you know, mm. so. Um, and one of the things I found was I was, I was living in Vienna, traveling into Czechoslovakia, traveling to Poland, traveling to Bulgaria, traveling to just, just again and again and again. We were, we were doing um, publishing, teaching, all sorts of things, but just continually. I found the levels of grief of always leaving places difficult mm. and it accumulated it accumulated because these people were becoming deep friends and it was the same people it wasn't new people all the time it was I mean I had I had done an extensive amount of work in Hungary and in uh, Bulgaria Romania mapping where the churches were under communism we didn't know and, and so I had a huge war map and I, with thousands of pins of different denominations and all across from northern Poland, East Germany, right the way down to the Baltics and uh, Balkans and so on, of every denomination you could think of. I could tell you, I can still see it, where they are, why they're there, why they're there and not there, all that sort of stuff, mm. who their leaders were, how they functioned and so on. But there were within that, there were certain people I got very close to, friends, people who were sources, people who were, um, yeah, much more than that, became close personal friends. And you're always leaving them to go somewhere else. And so you, the reason we moved to Slovakia was because I just had to get one of those cultures out of my system mm. and get into some place where I could root myself a bit more, my family a bit more. My family were in Austria, I was always in Czechoslovakia or Bulgaria or somewhere else. And they they travelled a lot with me, but, but um, when schooling time came they had to settle down a bit. So, um, so we moved to Slovakia and used that as a base and we got very deeply involved with people there, church there, friends there. Um, I resolved my problem with the church through meeting people, uh, probably one of the most legalistic um, communities you could imagine, um, of, of Russian Germans who, Russian Germans who'd lived in Russia for generations, some of them, and had come out to West Germany, um, and the West German government had been buying them out. Um, <coughs> and and because they were a minority, and part of my studies had showed me that minorities of any flavor, it doesn't matter whether they're Muslim or Christian or, or engineers, it, you know, it's the same. 
if you feel like you're a minority in a wider group of people, you take on the same sociological components mm. and attitudes and means of defense and means of definition, who's in and who's out and so on. And I was interested in studying that. And so I, and I was interested in studying these Russian Germans because we were working with them in um, the Soviet Union. So I went, we went and lived with them for a while in North Germany. And um, I knew they were very, very legalistic, very, very tight rules. But I also knew that this was largely sociological, not theological. Um, and when we arrived there, my wife was wearing trousers, uh, jeans, blue jeans. We'd just driven 18 hours from <laughs> our home to their homes, you know. <coughs> and the, the guy came to me, the man in, in whose house we were going to stay, and he said, my children are asking, is your wife a Christian? And I said, yes, you can tell them. Well, why do you ask? He said, well, she's, she's wearing men's clothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I knew that that was the issue, an issue, but we'd, we'd just completely forgotten because we'd been in the car so long. And then he said, will she be wearing the men's clothing to church tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, she, she won't. I mean, she won't. Once we're here, she will fit in with your rules. And because we climbed over the wall of their legal thing to say we will be inside and we'll submit, they opened their hearts to us. And it was a group of 35 families. They had 350 kids. Mm. So the average was 10. Some had a lot more, a few had a lot less. The largest I met was a family of 17 children, and one of them, the last one, was a son. <laughs> <laughs> and they very loved, really warm people once you got on the other in, into the inside and you saw what a community could be and I, I was overwhelmed by it mm. very very legalistic but amazingly loving mm. yeah, very well defended in the sense of afraid of Russians in the sense of minority and inferiority and whatever but they love one another mm. and and then we went back to England to another very very conservative church dear lovely people who did the same thing and I thought well you know this my perception was only of one very s small moment in history and of one time lots of things that I, I didn't like about the culture and don't like about the culture I've been able to sort of fill out in other ways and I don't have to accept the ugly culture um, but um, I do have to look beyond this, my own cynicism into something much deeper. So that, that would be, I, I think the labels are never quite what they are on the tin. Mm. Uh, uh, what's in the tin is something that's very different and you've got to look for it and you've got to, you've got to be open and you've always got to be as challenging your own assumptions. What am I assuming here that's getting in the way of, of seeing what's really there? Mm -hmm. um, that would be a big I don't know if it's a story, <laughs> but it's uh, that was it's, perfect. Yeah, good. That anyway, was so, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very important to me um, to test your own assumptions mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that you can you can actually see the thing for what it is and not for what you're trying to make it be. Mm -hmm. It's an extraordinarily important thing. 
Well, thank you so much. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much to Marsh for giving time away from his book to reflect on his winding path. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.